1: Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Friday. Man, the end of this week could not come a moment too soon, am I right? (laughs) This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and yes, happy warriors. Don't forget me on social media, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, Twitter and true social at Monica Crowley and by email Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Send me a note. Let me know what you're thinking. Um, All right. So I know I had promised you judge Janine Pirro. She had a scheduling conflict. So we're working to try to get her on the show maybe next week or the week after. So stay tuned for that. And also next week, next week, a big, big guest. You're not going to want to miss a second of this, okay? Um, This show, you should all be listening to every show anyway and telling all your friends, but next week, I promise you, this is going to be a barn burner. We also have some big guests coming up, too. Not just the big guests coming up next week, but big guests we've got lined up. We're in the process of confirming some really big names, some heavyweights. So you are definitely going to want to be here for all of it. The Monica Crowley Podcast is where it is at, my friends. All right, later today, we're going to turn to another big guest, my good friend Greg Jarrett, legal analyst for Fox News He's got a brand new book out on the Scopes Monkey Trial. If you don't know what that is, that's because our education system has failed you. You should know what it is because it happened in 1925 and it was a seminal, seminal legal case that had echoes throughout American history from that point in time all the way through to today. And the culture battles, the culture war that we are in today Actually, probably began with the Scopes Monkey Trial. Creation versus evolution, what should be taught in schools, what should be talked about in society. That was this case. And Greg calls it the trial of the century, even more so than the Nuremberg trials or the Lindbergh case or the O.J. Simpson case. He says, no, this one had far more import. This is fascinating. This book is incredible. We're going to talk to him about that, and we're going to talk to him about where we are in all of these Trump legal battles as well, which are also seminal cases. We have not experienced anything like this before, where the the political operatives, a- including a sitting president and his Department of Justice, his attorney general, and DAs around the country, are going after a former president of the United States. We have never experienced this before. Not in Watergate, not with Bill Clinton, nothing like this. So this is setting a lot of precedents too, and none of them are good. So we're going to talk to Greg Jarrett about that as well. I promise you, you're going to love this conversation. First up though, the Monica memo. We have an American president who keeps wiping out. He's wiping out, but he's not surfing. He is just walking and he falls down because the man is 80 and he's an old 80. There is young old and then there is old old. And God willing, we will all get to old old someday. But that does not mean that someone who is old old needs to be president of the United States or should be president of the United States. There is young old people in their 70s, in their 80s, who are full of life. My mom, cutting her own grass, out there with the lawnmower, okay? Donald Trump, mid-70s, also out there uh, doing rallies. He just did a Hannity Town Hall for Fox News last night, brilliant, top of his game, okay? So there's... People who are young for their age, in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and maybe even beyond, there's a woman over 100 years old who was quoted a couple of weeks ago as saying, the key to living over 100, at least for me, good sex. Okay, so there is young old, and then there's old old. Joe Biden is old old. And again, I hope we all get to old old someday, way down the road. But that doesn't mean that we should be president when we are in that condition. Yesterday, he was at the Air Force Academy graduation and he fell. He tripped over a sandbag. I don't know what the sandbag was doing on the stage. I have no idea. But this is a man who has now had three public falls just this year. And it's only June 2nd three public falls, meaning what in God's name is he doing where we can't see him, where he's in Delaware every weekend, where he's at Camp David, where he's at his Rehoboth Beach House, where he goes now uh, because it's summertime. They won't allow any records uh, to be released, Secret Service records of uh, who is coming and going Who is talking to him? What kind of phone calls he's taking while he's there? We don't know. Are there doctors there pumping him full of drugs? Who knows? To get him through the week? We don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. But he has now wiped out three times in public just this year. And he fell at this graduation and it was really bad. Remember when he wiped out on his bike? He had the helmet on, thank goodness, and the the whole thing, but he fell. He just like spilled out on the street. And then later, after he had fallen, he bumped his head while getting out of the helicopter. Now, again, accidents happen. People fall. People bump their heads. I, I understand that. But when you pair repeated problems like this with the fact that he is 80 and he's old, old, and he's got the most stressful job in the world, he's supposedly the leader of the free world, air quotes, most stressful job in the world, although apparently not for him because he rolls into the Oval around 10, 10.30 in the morning and he's out by about 4, 4.30. So he's not really working, and we know this, and we know this. He's just a puppet for whomever is pulling his strings, Barack and Michelle, the entire Obama machine, Soros, the globalists, you you name it. So maybe he's not all that stressed, but he is still the face of this power, right? And so, you know, he's got to have something together, but barely Okay, the guy goes home at night. He's basically uh, dinner at 5.30, and I'm all for an early dinner. I don't know if you guys like an early dinner. I love an early dinner. But this guy is sitting in a rocking chair with a blanket over his knees, staring vacantly out into space. President of the United States. What a joke. And people are out there saying how sad it is, including President Trump. Uh, During the Hannity Town Hall, he said, well, look, it's very sad. And he doesn't want to pile on Biden. And I get that. I understand that as a political calculation. The vibrancy of Trump versus Biden, and Trump is four years younger, um, but the vibrancy between the two is so stark. It's just incredible. But I understand where Trump doesn't want to pile on him. He'll let other people pile on. That's fine. But even Trump yesterday said it's very sad. It's very sad to see. Look, it's sad for his family, except his wife. I mean, this is real elder abuse, so maybe it's not sad for them. Maybe they could care less. But this is definitely elder abuse, and it's sad in the generic sense that any old person who can't really function is being put in this kind of position. But it is not sad for us. For us, it is horrifying, and it makes us angry. We are furious. We are not sad. We are furious that the United States of America, our country that we love, is put in this position of having an absolutely decrepit commander-in-chief who can't even find his pants, but somehow he's leading the country and the free world. Give me a break. And when he fell yesterday, I put up on Twitter, I was like, oh, but yeah, he's totally going to be the Democrat nominee. Come on, man. No way. No way. This is why we did that show last week with Joel Gilbert on the possibility of Michelle Obama. And Gavin Newsom's out there chomping at the bit. There is no way that this man is going to be... They just... Can't unless they've got another 2020 style global panic ready to go. New virus, shut down the world again, send him back to the basement. Otherwise, I can't see it. I can't see it. I could be wrong. They could just prop him up, put a stick behind him, another week in a Bernie situation, but I can't see it. The, and the point is, not even about Joe Biden. The point is that the country is now put in this box of having this absolutely feeble, decrepit husk of a man who's always been a hack and a jerk, and now he's a hack and a jerk who's out to lunch. That is our leader? Oh, hell no. Hell no. And yet, apparently, the guy who can't find his pants got the best of Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans with this debt limit. I am incensed over what has happened here. Incensed. You know, Speaker McCarthy and I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I was so glad, as you guys know, we talked about it on the show back in uh, January when the Speaker's challenge was going on, that I was really touting those 20 Republicans who stood up and said, not so fast. This is not going to be a coronation. We need real concessions from McCarthy if we're going to vote for him and he's going to end up as speaker. And they got amazing concessions. But now in this debt limit situation, you know, that the Republicans passed an excellent bill. Was it perfect? No. But it was excellent in terms of finally reigning in spending and delivering accountability reigning in the size of government, making real cuts. And the Senate didn't take it up because they knew what was going to go down. Schumer knew what was going down. And so did McCarthy. Now, I believe it was all a farce. Now, I just think it was all a setup. They, they passed this great bill and McCarthy knew all along, you know, it was never going to see the light of day because he had to negotiate with the White House. But he had all of the leverage because the White House needed them. And instead of pressing the case, instead of standing and delivering, McCarthy and the rest of these clowns just, you know, passed it. And I think it was something like 148 or 146 Republicans uh, went along with this. It's just, (laughs) this is, there are so many things that matter. The weaponization of our own government against us is the primary one. And this is a symptom of it. This is what they do. The uni party weaponized against us. They are putting us on the back heel in so many ways because it's all so corrupt. Remember when Janet Yellen, our treasury secretary, who's also now old, old, um, remember when she said, June 1st, we're going to run out of money. Well, June 1st was yesterday. We're still going. And then she changed the final date to June 5th. Why? Because they all knew that in the end, they were going to get a sellout debt bill. That's why she pushed the date back. Joke's on you because you're going to be the one holding the bag, as we always are, because our so-called elected representatives do not represent us anymore. They haven't for a very long time. They only represent themselves and their own power and their own interests. That's it. So we're going to be the ones left holding the bag as we already are with skyrocketing inflation, high interest rates, the whole shebang. And because this uh, deal is so bad, listen to this, this bill involves only minimal upfront spending cuts. Okay, the bare minimum, only 9% of the fiscal year 2024 cuts offered by the bill um, that they originally passed, 9%. That's it. And it only includes two years of binding caps on spending growth. These are not cuts, guys. This is just slowing the rate of growth and barely. It also gives Biden his entire agenda. It's not going to stop the Green New Deal subsidies or the illegal student loan cancellations. And it rescinds only 2% of the $80 billion of extra money for the IRS. 2%. Well, they stood up an IRS army to come after you. Not the millionaires and billionaires, although I guess they're in the crosshairs too. But it's really about you because middle class is where the real money is. And McCarthy was fine with that. He was fine with the 87,000 new IRS agents. The very first thing that they did, the Republicans, when they came into office, they rescinded the funding for this new IRS army. Of course, it didn't go anywhere because it died in the Senate. uh, Biden would have vetoed it anyway. But that was their first symbolic bill, defunding the IRS army. And then McCarthy goes and gives it all back just like the original bill that they passed with actual spending cuts mccarthy just gave it all back this is a betrayal of epic proportions guys instead of borrowing 14 trillion over the next 10 years or so we're going to borrow closer to 12 trillion oh okay that makes it so much better you kidding me And of course, they're going to pierce this uh, spending caps. And there's a report out from the CBO that's saying that this debt deal might actually weaken work requirements for things like food stamps and other cash assistance programs. Weaken it, not strengthen it, weaken it. This is an absolute betrayal. And guys, I mean, if you think that we still have superpower status It is directly linked to our economic power and the economic implosion that is going to come. It's going to be inevitable because we've got a a bunch of cowards in office who will not pull the trigger. They're only interested in themselves. And because of that, we're going to be the ones suffering because the economic implosion that is now inevitable and it's coming down the pike faster than ever is going to hit you and me. And it is going to be absolutely catastrophic. It infuriates me that we put these people into positions of authority and power to protect us and all they do is sell us down the river and put us into these difficult, in some cases, disastrous positions that ruin our lives in many cases, bankrupt us. Oh, it makes me sick to my stomach. It really does. The uni party needs to be destroyed. We talk about the deep state. We talk about the administrative state. All that needs to be destroyed. But it is a uni party thing that needs to be destroyed. All of these corrupt Republicans who could care less about you. I mean, we don't have a better option at this point. So we go with the Republican Party because it's better than the Marxists on the other side. But marginally better. Okay. Okay it infuriates me. And these people who are like all too well to go down this road, you know, Steve Bannon and others are talking about primarying them. And I think maybe that needs to be done. We got to teach this uni party a lesson just because you have an R next to your name does not guarantee you permanency in your position. We will take you out by a primary. We will. And we must, we cannot go on like this guys. All right, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Greg Jarrett to talk to us about the corruption at the DOJ, FBI, what's going on with Trump, and his fantastic new book called The Trial of the Century. Sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double, and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Well, I'm delighted to welcome my good friend, Greg Jarrett. He is, of course, an attorney, legal, and political analyst for Fox News, and he's also a best selling author. His brand new book is absolutely sensational. It's called The Trial of the Century, which is such an important look at the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. We need to know our history. Our kids are not learning history. And as I was saying to Greg before we came on, I said, you know, I remember studying or learning about the Scopes Monkey Trial back in, I don't know, high school, but it was like half of a class mention, right? It was like a, a five or 10 minute kind of uh, mention. And so what he has done here is excavate the history and we all need to know it because Lord knows the schools aren't teaching it. This new book will give you the real history of the trial and our history during that time. It's just dynamite. Greg joins us now. Hi, my friend.
2: Hi, Monica. Great to be with you.
1: Well, it's great to have you here, Greg, for your debut appearance on the Monica Crowley podcast, and I hope it's (laughs) the first of many appearances.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the mention of the book. I put a lot into it, and I'm very proud of the result.
1: Well, you should be. You should be. As I was telling you, I was dipping into it uh, before we spoke. You very kindly gave me a beautifully inscribed copy, and it is really, really well done. So we're going to get into that in a moment here and why the Scopes Monkey Trial matters today, because it really does have great resonance. But first, I'd like to get a sense from you of where we are in this legal assault on President Trump. He has already been indicted by the Soros DA in Manhattan over nothing, and now he's facing imminent indictments from other Soros DAs and the Merrick Garland Special Counsel. Tell us what's happening in each of these remaining cases and where we are.
2: Well, you mentioned the Alvin Bragg uh, District Attorney in Manhattan indictment of Donald Trump, which is completely laughable, but it should also be alarming. It's selective prosecution, it is it represents sort of a dual system of justice. The indictment itself is so weak that Bragg didn't even state the underlying crime. Why? Because there is none under law. It's shocking to me the judge didn't just toss it out and lecture Bragg that you know, under the Constitution, you, you, the Sixth Amendment, you have to tell someone, Uh, that you have criminally charged what they did wrong, but he doesn't do that. Uh, I think in the end, he either has to fix this indictment or it will, you know, be dismissed on a motion to dismiss. Uh, But down in, you know, in Georgia, Fulton County. Can I stop you there,
1: Greg, before we move on to Georgia? So when you're saying it will be likely dismissed if he doesn't fix this. Doesn't that assume a judge wants to dismiss this? And what we have seen is our judicial system is just shot through with the same kind of corruption that all of our institutions and and government branches are shot through with. So you're going to have to land in the hands of a fair judge. And when you're talking about Donald Trump, isn't that an uphill battle?
2: Oh, it is. It's, you know, it's New York, liberal judges, but uh, if the motion to dismiss is denied, he would take it up on appeal. And, you know, so I I don't envision the Bragg case ever getting to a jury.
1: Well, from your lips to God's ears, let's hope that's the case and that appellate courts uh, see it the way you see it in terms of rule of law. OK, so proceed, please. The Georgia case.
2: Yeah. In Fulton County, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, her Proposed or planned indictment. We, you know, we saw some of it with the special grand jury and the very talkative foreperson. Um, that's equally absurd. Uh, I mean, if you take a snippet of a conversation that Trump had with the Secretary of State and try to mold it into a crime, uh, that's a fool's errand. There. Um, You know, allegedly, you know, Trump said, I need you to find votes. Well, every losing candidate says that.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's the point. If you listen
2: to the rest of the conversation, what he's asking for is a recalculation and recount, which any candidate in any election is entitled to. Um, You know, he was of the belief that there were some invalid ballots that had been counted and valid Ballots that hadn't been counted, and you know he he was saying I'm behind by this particular number, uh, and you know I I want a review, and there's nothing unlawful about that. Look, Alvin Bragg and Fannie Willis both ran on the promise that they would get Trump, mm-hmm. uh, that they would prosecute him. That is an egregious violation of the canons of ethics. Uh, You know, and and both of them, it seems to me, ought to be brought up on a Bar Association review for doing that. When they were making this promise to get elected, they didn't have access to any information or any files uh, evidencing wrongdoing by Donald Trump. And yet they committed themselves to an indictment. I mean, that is just fundamentally unfair in every category. And, you know, I, I think her case is just as specious uh, as Alvin Bragg's, which, you know, which leaves us with Jack Smith. But can I stop you counselor. there again,
1: uh, Greg, yeah. because there is a headline that's crossing right now as we speak that Fannie Willis, this uh, Fulton County D.A., she is a Soros D.A., as you just laid out. There's a headline today that says that she is now broadening her investigation and her prosecution to include Trump's activities in Washington and several other states. And the reporting (laughs) is that this is a fresh sign that prosecutors may be building a sprawling case under Georgia's racketeering laws. What do you make of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure that she has jurisdiction to expand it into activities beyond Fulton County. Uh, you know the, yeah, Fulton County, Georgia. You know, we're seeing this, the, you know, local prosecutors uh, misusing the authority of their office. It's an, a, a terrible abuse of power, uh, you know, and I think it it frankly needs to stop. I, you know, I don't think much of her legal skills, her competency, um, you know, she is a politician. And she had promised a political statement and she's following through on it uh, by abusing the legal system in the process.
1: It's just unbelievable. Um, and that brings us to Merrick Garland, special counsel, Jack Smith, who is looking into uh, he's looking into the classified documents case out of Mar-a-Lago. And then there is a January 6th investigation as well with Trump, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you can always tell the direction that a prosecutor is taking by simply looking at the the people he's interviewed and those that he is put in front of a grand jury. It's pretty obvious, Monica, that he has no interest in January 6th, which tells me that Jack Smith, uh, you know, is certainly intelligent because there is nothing in the record that suggests that Donald Trump incited violence under the meaning of the law in the Brandenburg uh, versus Ohio case, U.S. Supreme Court case. You have to be actively advocating imminent violence. And if you look at Trump's speech uh, on the ball that day of January 6th, he's actually telling uh, his listeners Uh, The opposite. He's telling them to let their voices be heard, but do it peacefully. So that's a no go in in terms of in any potential crime. There's no evidence of a conspiracy uh, of insurrection in the United States. So that leaves us with the documents at Mar-a-Lago. Now, I have to say, I think it all comes down to uh, the law. And the governing statute over those documents is the Presidential Records Act. And you know it is not a model of clarity, it is uh, a model of ambiguity. But nevertheless, you have to look at how it has been regarded in the past. And the Department of Justice for the last 10 years is taking the position that under that act, a president can take whatever he wants. They literally made that argument in the Bill Clinton case involving classified documents to a federal judge in Washington, D.C., and the judge agreed there is a written opinion that that particular judge issued. Uh, All of a sudden, 10 years later, Merrick Garland decides to throw out that standard, the Clinton standard. Uh, out the window because it's Donald Trump,
1: mm-hmm. right? Right.
2: So now they've taken the position that uh, we're, we can criminalize a civil statute. Well, no, you can't. Uh, the proper remedy under the law is to go to a judge in a civil court and file what's known as a, a motion to compel production of those allegedly classified documents. Let a judge, fair and impartial, uh, decide what goes where. But, you know, it, it, and so I think Jack Smith is also aiming at obstruction that the president wasn't sufficiently cooperative with the FBI. Uh, I don't know how you make that case if there are witnesses who are prepared to testify that when the FBI came, uh trump stepped into the room and said show him everything and let him take anything you guys can take whatever you want right the fbi didn't do that instead they you know i think they were flummoxed they went back to uh the department of justice and merrick garland and said well he's given us everything should we take it And, and garland no garland wanted to make it a crime and so he said don't take it we're gonna we're gonna raid his property and some people reportedly in the fbi top echelons of the Hoover building said, "Ah, you can't do this. Um, It's not warranted. Garland did it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is Garland who has engineered all of this. uh, And, you know, my concern is that the special counsel Jack Smith may try to buy into that. We'll see.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really Merrick Garland is the most radical political corrupt Attorney General we have ever had, and that's saying something, because we've had oh, yeah. some beauties, as Trump would say. Uh, we've had some beauties in the past, um, including Eric Holder, but this guy is really the most radical AG we have ever had, and the irony is, you know, during uh, Trump's four years, the left would constantly attack his Attorney uh, attorneys General as being oh, there he's just uh, Donald Trump's lawman, he's protecting it's all projection, because they, when they get into these positions, they are as dirty as they come. Okay, please stand by, Greg. We've got much more straight ahead. Okay, we are back with Greg Jarrett. His new book is called The Trial of the Century. What do you make, Greg, of Trump's argument that as president, he had the, the uh, full right to declassify any documents in front of him and that he had the power to do that with these documents. And he did. So it's all moot.
2: Yes. Well, it's a valid argument. Um, you know, there are certain processes by which others uh, who want to declassify uh, classified documents have to follow. But those don't apply to the president of the United States. So if indeed he declassified all of these documents, um, then, you know, that's a valid defense. And, you know, that's a defense that uh, Joe Biden doesn't have uh, in the classified documents that he stored in not one but four locations.
1: Including his Uh, garage and apparently the glove compartment of his Corvette. (laughs)
2: Yeah. There you go. The Corvette that Hunter Biden loved to drive. And, you know, there are photographs of him driving that Corvette. So, you know, I my my beef with Merrick Garland is that he is not only going after Trump with a vengeance and misapplying the law, but he's running a protection racket for his boss, Joe Biden, and his boss's son, Hunter Biden which is an obvious conflict of interest, so much so that under federal regulations, it's mandatory that he disqualify himself. Members of Congress have repeatedly, in writing, demanded that he follow federal regulations, which, by the way, were codified into law, and Garland won't do it. Uh, There's no other explanation for a five-year-long criminal investigation into Hunter Biden over documents uh, that implicate his father as involved, no charges. And the only explanation is that both the FBI under Christopher Wray and Merrick Garland's Department of Justice are running a protection racket. And we've certainly heard that from whistleblowers who have come forward, uh, blowing the whistle on the IRS, the Department of Justice and the FBI, accusing them of political interference in trying to bury, uh, you know, the influence peddling schemes that uh, Hunter Biden and other family members were running with our foreign adversaries selling access to a powerful uh, vice president, uh, Joe Biden, and uh, promises of future influence in a, you know, Joe Biden presidency. You know, that's uh, that constitutes a violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, bribery, conspiracy, fair violations. But, you know, if you're also involved in bribery, that's an impeachable offense. Remember, treason, bribery, high crimes and misdemeanors. Yes. It's in the Constitution.
1: This is why Garland and his crew are protecting him because they know that. They know that bribery is an impeachable offense. And and bribery is also a very basic, I mean, it's extremely dirty, corrupt criminal act, but it's also a very basic act. It's something, Greg, from a political standpoint that every American can understand. It's not yeah. like it's some complicated whitewater land deal or some complicated financial transaction. Bribery Pretty straightforward, and they know the political damage that this could cause Joe Biden. And, you know, if Democrats were honest, which they're not, um, would end in his removal from the presidency. But, you know, when you've got the prosecutors and the Department of Justice, when they're the corrupt ones, you, you get yes. no action whatsoever. And so Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, the entire family, they just keep rolling on because they know they're protected, not just by the DOJ and FBI, but by the press as well.
2: Yes, which is why the next presidential election is so uh, critical, because the only way to uh, drain the swamp in the Department of Justice, to fire all of the corrupt individuals there, uh, including the Attorney General, and to dismantle the FBI that, you know nobody has any trust in, is for uh, a different president, Uh, to, you know, take the helm in the Oval Office. I've long argued that, you know, the FBI is now so uh, infected in this cesspool of corruption that the only way to deal with it is to dismantle the FBI and reconstruct it so that it uh, is dedicated to its original intent. The premier law enforcement agency in the world that uh you know goes after you know criminals objectively neutrally and and they don't weaponize their immense power and unlimited resources for political purposes.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I don't think it can be reformed. I think you've got to raise it to the ground and start all over again. And final question on this before we move to your book, Greg. I would love to get your opinion on this. For years we have heard Well, yes, the DOJ and FBI have serious corruption problems, but it's only limited to the top leadership. It's just the top layer. You know, the rank and file, these are dedicated men and women who are committed to the rule of law and carrying out uh, justice equally. And while I have no doubt that there are some of those uh, kind of patriotic Americans who believe in the mission as it is supposed to be. I believe that there are some in the DOJ and FBI, but I also disagree with this wholesale notion that everybody else in these institutions is on the up and up. I think that the corruption is so deep in these places that you do have to uproot the entire thing. And if those decent people want to continue to work in a reconstituted FBI and DOJ, they can certainly reapply, but they will be vetted. Because all you have to do, Greg, is take a look at those FBI agents that raided Mar-a-Lago. They were full of glee. I mean, yeah. there was like a sadistic kind of glee that went on here. So I don't buy that everybody else, except for the leadership, is is great and honorable. Again, there are some uh, who are, and I'm sorry for them that be- they're being tainted, but I really believe that probably the vast majority of people working in these institutions now are totally politicized and therefore corrupted.
2: Yeah, it's like a contagion, an infection, and it spreads so quickly. And I think your your point is a legitimate one, that, you know, this politicization uh, has worked its way uh, outside the Hoover building and into the field offices. And the people, you know, special agents in charge, the SACs, I mean, they they too have, you know, decided to abuse their powers. And and this is what we're hearing from whistleblowers. You know, that that they're not just pointing the finger of corruption at the Hoover Building seventh floor and the hierarchy in the FBI. They're talking about it it extends beyond that to the field offices and, you know, some of the agents. Um, You know, I interviewed one recently, uh, had her on my podcast. It's the reason she quit she saw this uh spreading like a contagion and and now it's you know out to uh the rank and file agents as well as those who run the field offices all over the united states
1: well there is no more rule of law and we cannot survive this so i the, the only uh the only remedy here is to raise it to the ground and begin again and we're going to need real leadership real courageous leadership in order to take on the administrative state and the deep state to get that done. Okay, we've got to hit a quick break, but we're going to come back with much more. First, though, guys, listen up, because you're going to want to take advantage of this limited-time package upgrade from our friends over at GenuCell. GenuCell has upgraded their most popular package to feature their top-selling deep-firming vitamin C serum, plus their Ultra Retinol Moisturizer with Natural Retinol Alternative. I love it so much. Go to GenuCell.com slash Monica and save over 70% off GenuCell's most popular package featuring both the GenuCell Ultra Retinol, again, I love it, and the GenuCell Firming Serum. Plus, get a complimentary spa essentials box with every package order and free upgrade to priority shipping. GenuCell's serum. Secret is a family recipe for over 20 years that makes it safe for all skin types and perfect for both men and women. Made by a compounding pharmacist in small batches and always safe cruelty-free and natural. So get the best skin of your life with GenuCell. Go to genucell.com/monica and save over 70% off GenuCell's most popular package. Every most popular package features their Ultra Retinol and GenuCell's firming serum. So don't wait. Go to genucell.com/monica, genucell.com/monica and get a complimentary spa essentials box with every package order. Plus, free upgrade to priority shipping. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L, e slash Monica, c slash Monica. We're coming right back. And we're back now with our final moments with Greg Jarrett. All right, let's right. turn to your dynamite new book. It's called The Trial of the Century. Why did you decide to write about the Scopes Monkey Trial, and why now, Greg? Because...
2: Over a long period of time, I figured out that nobody had ever heard of it. I mean, if you're over the age of 50, you've heard of it because you learned it in school. Uh, it, It was about the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. And this was a period, Monica, where America was, you know, at the precipice, staring into the abyss of getting rid of free speech. You know the religious fervor uh, of Christian fundamentalists at the time, following World War One, was uh, so pervasive that uh, they were succeeding in banning books in science, particularly evolution. And in Tennessee, uh, you know the the great fundamentalist leader William Jennings Bryan, who who, by the way, I, I admire, but you know he was able to pressure the state into making it a crime for a school teacher in a public school to even utter the word evolution even though there was a subchapter in the state approved textbook on Darwin's cornerstone theory uh and young John Scopes 25 years old a substitute biology teacher was you know arrested and charged criminally handcuffed um and he was put on trial. And Brian was so gratified at what he'd done, he volunteered to prosecute him. Brian was a lawyer as well, three-time Democratic presidential nominee who lost all three times. So uh, Scopes is about to go on trial in the tiny town of Dayton, Tennessee, and Clarence Darrow reads about it. And he had once been a friend and supporter of Brian Uh, But when Bryant went to extremes, um, they became enemies. Darrow volunteers to, for free, defend John Scope. So this set up, this titanic clash of two epic figures in American history, Clarence Darrow versus William Jennings Bryant. And I traveled to the courthouse in Dayton, Tennessee. It was closed, but I met the archivist who took me into the basement of the building and provided me with the original trial transcript of the Scopes Monkey Drop.
1: Incredible. So what were their... Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the two titans, you know, now now it's like Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis or whatever. Um, But at the time, and this is pre-TV, pre-social media, obviously, this is 1925. But these figures, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan, they were... Titanic forces. They were absolute superstars. And before real entertainment, as we know it today, politics was entertainment. This is why presidential candidates would jump on the back of a train and travel the country and do whistle-stop um, engagements in small towns. So, and they would stand at the end of the, the train and talk to the gathered crowd. And that was the crowd's entertainment. Again, they had no radio, no television, no no social media, no other distraction. So politics was it. And these two guys were like titanic forces. So what were their, in, in a nutshell, Greg, what were their uh, competing arguments in the courtroom?
2: Well, Brian believed that everything in the Bible should be taken literally, um, which, you know, theologians universally uh, recognize is not true. The Bible, which is a wonderful book, and Daryl knew passages by heart. His father had been a seminarian. Uh, But, you know, the Bible is filled with parables and allegories that teach us important moral lessons, not everything is, is literal. It, it, it is spiritual in many ways. Uh, but Brian believed now you know, this evolution undermines, uh, the story of man's creation in the book of Genesis in the Bible. And thus we have to ban it. Uh, and Clarence Darrow's argument was, wait a minute, theologians believe, and so do scientists that evolution doesn't undermine the Bible. It is harmonious; uh, it doesn't conflict. And in fact, we know that now all major religions have taken that position. Even the Pope has said that evolution presupposes creationism. But you know, it was a different time back then, almost a hundred years ago. And as I say, at stake was free speech, academic autonomy, intellectual empowerment. And as Darrow said in court during the trial. Um, people should be allowed to learn freely just as they're permitted to exercise their religion freely. We cannot make the Bible the yardstick by which all learning, all knowledge in the human mind is measured. And, you know, so they went at it and it was not a fair trial. Uh, The jury was stacked against Darrow, uh, the judge and ordained minister. Had spoken out against evolution, uh, and you know Daryl was losing, and he knew he was losing, and so he did something extraordinary. He called the prosecutor William Jennings Bryan, his nemesis, to the witness stand as an expert on the Bible, and the judge said, "Well, you can't do that. He's the prosecutor." Daryl was counting on Bryan's ego, and sure enough, Bryan stood up and said, "I have nothing to fear. I want to testify." To tell everyone God's word and, uh, you know, these heathens and agnostics like Darrow, these infidels, you know, I want to set them straight. So the judge says, well, all right, but we have to move this outdoors because the stifling heat people are fainting in here. The courtroom was packed wall to wall with people and the judge was afraid the second floor courtroom would collapse. So there was a platform outdoors outside the courthouse. Bleachers were set up because uh, it was left over from the 4th of July festivities. So there you have this legendary confrontation, a cross-examination of Brian by Darrow up on the stage and thousands of people are watching this thing. And in the pre-television age, This was the first trial that was broadcast live to a riveted nationwide audience. People stopped what they were doing. They stopped working and they tuned in and they listened to this. And, you know, I recount the devastating cross-examination by Darrow in my book based on the original trial transcript and also the longhand notes of the court reporter that are still at the courthouse. And by the end of it, this crowd that loved and adored and supported Brian turned against him, mm. and they started laughing at him uh, because, you know, Daryl made him look like a fool. And at the end of it, the judge bangs the gavel and adjourns for the day. and the crowd, which hated Daryl, suddenly loved him mm. because they understood. and uh, Daryl looks back. And there's Brian, a solitary figure on the stage, not a friend in the world, utterly destroyed. And it's so much so that uh, a couple of days later, still in Dayton, Tennessee, just down the street from the courthouse, Brian laid down for a nap and he never woke up.
1: Wow. Wow. That's how devastating it was to him. Yeah,
2: he was ruined you know, his his life's work. And he was a great statesman. One of the finest speeches ever given was his cross of gold speech at the Democratic Convention in 1896. And then he became the nominee. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he was a wonderful man. He was a brilliant man. He did so much good. uh, But he was shattered in the end and died.
1: I mean, it's Shakespearean in its epic scope here with these two incredible towering figures, these two famous orators going at each other, and then one literally does not survive this trial. It's just amazing. So why, Greg, why did you decide to call this and not say the Lindbergh kidnapping case or the Nazi trials at Nuremberg or even the O.J. Simpson murder case The trial of the century. What was it about this that really sets it apart from everything else?
2: Well, the cases you mentioned, um, you know, particularly the O.J. Simpson case, a murder case, there are thousands of those every year. And I look, I covered the O.J. Simpson trial uh, inside the courtroom for nine months uh, in Los Angeles. Um, And, you know, a case like that. As tragic as it was, and and as much worldwide attention that it garnered, uh, pales in comparison uh, to this trial of the century, the Scopes Monkey Trial, because something that we cherished was at stake: our First Amendment free speech rights. And I, you know, I sort of shudder to think um, what America might be like today if Darrow had not prevailed. And yes, Darrow lost the trial because the jury convicted Scopes. It was later overturned. But uh, Darrow won the day and changed America with his powerful arguments, uh, because that spelled the beginning of the end for banning books uh, in science. Uh, and and they stopped criminalizing the teaching of evolution. And generations of students uh, were the beneficiaries of the, the work that Darrow did, the courage of a young school teacher and his intrepid lawyer that changed the course of history in America.
1: And it really did, this entire trial and the circus that went on with it and the media coverage, the press coverage, I suppose, at the time, it really did foreshadow the culture wars to come, did it not? I mean, we're still fighting elements of this kind of thing today in a lot of different directions.
2: Yes. And I talk about that extensively in the book, that this is a case that is as relevant today as it was 100 years ago. Because Mm -hmm. We're seeing the same erosion of intellectual freedom and free speech with partisan censorship and political discourse that we see these days, you know, the polarizing disinformation campaigns, classroom indoctrination, punitive cancel culture, you know, nowadays conformity of thought seems to be supplanting robust debate and darrow would be mortified and he would fight with everything he had uh just as he did in the scopes trial to preserve and solidify our free speech rights
1: amazing it it is just so resonant for what we're dealing with today it's almost like it's a century long bookmark right it's 1925 here we are in 2023 yeah. Over the course of a century. And you know what they say, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And yeah. this is why we need to understand the history. And this is why this book is so important. I want to tell the audience, this book reads like a novel. It is such a page turner. You're not going to be able to put it down. And it makes it makes a really important contribution to our history. And again, we're not getting it our kids aren't getting it. So this is a really important book for you to pick up and make a great Father's Day gift. But for yourself, for your friends, it's really important that you get this book and and get a couple of extra copies too for the people that you know. Well done, my friend. Well done. Thank you.
2: Yeah, the trial of the century uh, is out this week nationwide in bookstores. It's available online in the usual places, Amazon, BarnesandNoble dot com. And I, you know, I think it's an important book because as you say. Uh, Monica, Ina, those who don't know their history are destined to repeat it, and invariably, that's not a good thing. So no. I hope people will pick up the trial of the century and read it.
1: It's an amazing book, guys, please. go get it. You won't be sorry. You won't be able to put it down either. Greg Jarrett, thank you so much, my friend.
2: Monica, thank you so much for taking an interest in the trial of the century and talking to me about it and having me on your program. Let's do it again
1: anytime. It's always my great pleasure. Greg Jarrett, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for being here and for checking out our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. Have a great weekend with those you love. I hope the weather is fine where you are. And I will see you right back here next week.